We are in the book of Acts. Please rise for the reading of God's Word. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. Acts chapter 2, verses at verse 14 there, going chapter by chapter through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. says this, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall, shall dream dreams, and all, on my men-servants and on my maid-servants I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass and who, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this word, opening our hearts to it, Lord. We come here to change. We come here to Lord, understand the fullness of Your Word and what You have in it for us. Lord, there's people in here this morning. You know their hearts. Lord, I cannot possibly know their hearts. You do. You know exactly what it takes to bring healing there, to bring encouragement, to... Exhort, Lord. If there's a man, a woman who's riding on a crust of the wave, how to stay there without falling in the pride, or if someone's in a valley, Lord, how to raise their countenance. Father, we love you and we need you. Speak to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you may be seated. So what does a church look like? that loves God, is sold out to Jesus, and is fully yielded to the Holy Spirit. Well, it looks like the church in the book of Acts, and I'm so happy we're in this book. We have so much to learn from it. I hope I speak for everyone in this room that uh, we want the Lord to do a work in our midst, in our church, in the churches in Boston, just as he did in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is here for the specific purpose of letting us know this is for you. This is for you today. This is for us today. It's not just some antique, some relic that we sort of admire, like it's in a museum or something like that. A lot of times people treat the book of Acts like that. But that was never, ever the case for placing this book right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then before 
some of the epistles, the letters. It's here for us as an example to encourage us to, uh, in, in a sort of a sanctified way, push us onward and even prick us. And there is such a thing as sanctified nagging by the Holy Spirit to get us to move on, get us up off our tails and on with the Lord. That's what the book of Acts is all about. The scene here in chapter 2, they're in Jerusalem. It is the Feast of the Pentecost. The Pentecost was one of three great feasts uh, for which every Jewish man was required to come to Jerusalem once a year. Of the three Jewish feasts, it's believed that it was the Pentecost where most of the Jews, or Jerusalem was the most populated of those three feasts. It's because it's in the summer. And as we'll learn actually later on in the book of Acts, the shipping lanes closed in the Mediterranean, limiting uh, uh, travel uh, in the months outside of the summer months. And so Josephus, the historian, says that there was one, two, even three million people just packed into Jerusalem and in the surrounding area. And so Jerusalem filled with Jews from all over the world. Verse 5 of chapter 2 says, from every nation under heaven. Fifty days earlier, Jesus had been crucified. Three days after that, he had raised from the dead. Forty days after his crucifixion, he had ascended into heaven, but not before he instructed them, saying, I will send you the promise. Wait in Jerusalem after I go away. And wait there until I send you the promise, speaking of the Holy Spirit. And you will be endued or cloaked with power from on high. So the disciples did just that. They waited in Jerusalem. Uh, It says in Acts uh, 2 verses 1 and 2 that um, they were all of one accord in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind it filled the whole house where they were sitting. So the promise, which is just as much a promise for today as it was then, had come. And in verse 4 it says, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues in the languages of, uh, of all the Jews, not all of whom spoke Hebrew. They lived all over the, the world. And... and, and they all, all of a sudden they were witnessing some people who they knew were not from the place in the world they were from speaking in their own language. Verse 7 says the people were amazed. Verse 11 says they're speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. What's going on? These Galileans are speaking in my own language and they don't even have a New Jersey accent which is what the Galilean accent sort of was at that time. You know, Joysy. Sorry, you guys from New Joysy. But anyway, verse 13 says, Others, mocking, said they're filled with new wine. That kind of wine that makes you easily drunk. Look at these foolish people. They're drunk. Now, tragically, they're is a certain kind of person. And this person actually is in the majority. Jesus says, broad is the road which leads to destruction. When they are presented with an obvious manifestation of God, uh, 
they will try to dismiss it as some natural phenomena, or worse, as they did here, they'll call something good, evil. They'll call something beautiful, ugly. They will call creation, evolution. They'll call a miracle, a coincidence. They will call a changed life, a deluded life. And throughout the book of Acts, you see this very thing happening. On the one hand, you will see throughout the book of Acts, as we go through it, uh, the Holy Spirit moving, signs and wonders following, people's lives profoundly changing. But on the other hand, you have people resisting and opposing, and when they can't stop what is going on, they begin to mock, and worse, they try to tear down the wonderful work of God. One of the reasons we read the Word of God is so that when that very thing happens to us today, we're not surprised. Look, we're prepared. Look, this happened to them in the book of Acts. We're encouraged. Wow, it happened to them. It's happening to us. You know, one of the best examples of this very thing that happened after the book of Acts, it's happened throughout history, this similar thing where the Holy Spirit's moving, wonderful things are happening, and a group rises up and opposes and begins to say all kinds of things, was right here in the United States in the mid-1700s. And in the 1730s and 40s, there was a revival that swept through all the colonies, actually throughout the whole eastern uh, seaboard. It started right here in Massachusetts in Northampton. Jonathan Edwards, who was a man who, uh, by no stretch of the imagination, a fringe kind of guy, he was just really solid Bible teacher, really solid in his theology. He gave a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And the Holy Spirit just descended on his church. And from there, it just swept right down the East Coast. The, uh, again, the whole eastern side of, the, uh, of what was then the United States caught up in a genuine revival. It was called the Great Awakening. And we're still feeling the effects of this revival today. So profound was the change in the country. You can read about it at the time. It, it, that by the time, 30, 40 years later, the Revolutionary War came and the Constitution was written, the Bill of Rights and all the Madison papers, the papers that uh, established just sort of the foundation of the government, virtually from top to bottom, the nation had been turned to Jesus Christ. Not everyone, but... So, so many that those who uh, those who signed the the Declaration of Independence and the just uh, the original congregational uh, the, rather the, the the original Confederacy uh, there uh, the Confederation of States the, the 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 leaders were so many of them were were Christians because of this revival this enormous revival and. But just as we see here in verse 13 of Acts 2, it says, Others mocking, they are full of new wine. There were mockers of the great awakening. Now, what is very intriguing to me is that the very center of that opposition came from right here in Boston, just a few blocks away. 
the leader of this thing, of a counter-movement against the revival, opposing it, was a man named Charles Chauncey, a very, very well-known figure, highly, highly regarded by all in the city. Listen to how he described, this is uh, Charles Chauncey of the First Church in Boston, described the Great Awakening. He says this, For myself, I am among... I am among those who are clearly of the opinion that there never has been such a spirit of superstition and enthusiasm reigning in the land before. Never such gross disorders and barefaced affronts to common decency. Never such a scandalous reproach on the blessed spirit making him the author of the greatest irregularities and confusion. That's how he described it. And he called the Great Awakening the Grand Delusion. I don't think it was a coincidence that after this time he later became a universalist, Christian universalist, which more or less believes you know, everyone goes to heaven through Christ. But then by the time he died, he was the leader of Unitarianism, which, which is this is always the slope that that, that that takes when you start going in that direction. Unitarianism... All religions more or less the same. But it started out as he's as a Christian leader opposing the first wonderful move of God in this country, the effects of which we're still reaping the benefits of today. <laughs> so again, Acts two thirteen. It says, others mocked, saying, they are filled with new wine. And then verse 14 says, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. The Jews began their clock at 6 a.m., Peter's saying, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. These men are not drunk. Then he goes on in verse 16, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come about. Now he's quoting the prophet Joel in the Old Testament here. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. So here is Peter, the Apostle Peter, standing before, as we'll see later in the chapter, thousands of people declaring Jesus Christ boldly and fearlessly. Now remember, not too many days prior to this, on the night that Jesus was arrested, Jesus, I mean, rather, Peter couldn't even declare Jesus to a squeaky little servant girl. This squeaky little girl saw P uh, Peter and said, Hey, you, you were with that man, Jesus of Nazareth. And it says at that point, he began to take oaths, plural, oaths. He didn't just stop at one. If, in other words, he was saying things like, 
If I know this Jesus, let me be accursed. If I know this Jesus, let me be struck dead. If I know this Jesus, let me be eternally damned. That's what this same guy said in the face of a squeaky little girl. Squeak, squeak. This big old burly fisherman, as we've talked about, that's the best we can do in our own strength. Apart from the Holy Spirit. Now 50 days, he's standing before 1,000. What was the difference? We read it in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He's now filled with the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 15 says, God did not give us a spirit of bondage again to fear. And that's what fear does. It keeps us in bondage. The Bible says, fear is torment. I know there's a lot of you who know exactly what that means. Fear is torment. But perfect love in Christ casts out fear. Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 15 says, We have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit empowers us to walk in our calling courageously, to set aside fear and entrust ourselves fully to the Lord. Oh, how we need the Holy Spirit. How we need Him today in this city. And I was thinking about what an opportunity we have here in Boston to just confess the role that this city has had in opposing genuine movements of God and just calling on the God. Uh, on the, God. the Bible says He's the God of all mercy. He's abundant uh, in, uh, in mercy. Psalm 25 says uh, that we remember His mercy for it is from old, meaning it, it's always been there. It's never going anywhere. What an opportunity we have to just ple- cry out to God, Lord, forgive us for what we have done in this city and be filled anew with the Holy Spirit and watch Him do a work through us, through our church through the churches in the city. What a great, great opportunity uh, that is. And here Peter is, filled with courage, speaking to all these people. He's, he's basically, you know, he after he sort of chickened out, if you will, in front of that squeaky little girl, he went off and hid. He hid. Even after the resurrection, he was, says he was in hiding. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he's before thousands. Now, when we receive the, uh, the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that we all receive the Holy Spirit at the time that we are saved. We, we then we have the privilege of continuing to ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but also to wait upon him for sort of a greater move of the Holy Spirit, even a revival. But um, we receive a lot more than just courage when we receive the Holy Spirit. We receive wisdom and deep understanding of the Word of God. The Bible says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says there are certain things that you cannot understand but for the Holy Spirit giving you that understanding. Here, Peter, an uneducated fisherman, grew up in the backwaters of Galilee, 
is reciting these fairly long segments of Scripture in verse 17 through 21. He's quoting the prophet Joel in the Old Testament in verses 25 through 28 and 34 and 35. He's quoting the Psalms. And listen, he's not reading from a scroll. Remember, they didn't have books then. They had scrolls. This is not Peter getting up in front of these people. He didn't even know this was going to happen when he woke up that morning. He didn't bring along some big scroll and getting up in front of the people and, you know, going like this and thinking, you know, and it shall come to pass on the last days. You know, it wasn't, that's not what was happening here. It's not what was happening at all. The Holy Spirit was bringing it to rem- uh, the, the Scripture, to uh, remembrance here. These Scriptures are, are rolling off His tongue, and that's what the Holy Spirit does in and through us as we're hil- filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we'll be off somewhere sharing with someone. Ever noticed? I'm sure this has happened to many of you in this room where you're sharing with someone, and, and, and all of a sudden, the, this one Scripture comes to mind, and then another one, and then, and, and then you know, another one, and you're like, is this me talking? You know, and, and 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 this is what happens. It's one of the benefits, the privileges, of being used by the Lord. You know, we have to understand that when we're speaking with someone about God, God loves that person a whole lot more than we do. We may think, oh well, it's my mother, it's my son, it's my daughter. No one loves this person more than me. And, and, and so then what we do is we strive in the flesh and our own strength and we're trying to think, how can I convince? No, God loves them a lot more than you do. And we had a, um, a wonderful funeral service yesterday for one of the brothers who, who died in our church and uh, Ben, Ben Daly and Many of us have known Ben for years and he's had such a burden for his own daughter because he's lived apart from her for many years. And uh, it was wonderful, you know, just getting up yesterday and I had the privilege of speaking there at the funeral service and actually shared from this same chapter here and... uh, and at the end, just gave, just gave people a, an opportunity to give their lives to the Lord. And I said, if anyone wants to give your life to the Lord, raise your hand. And man, her hand went up right like this, high into the sky, and she was weeping. And Ben loved her so much. He just was tormented over the fact that she didn't know Jesus. And he, he went to the grave really, really... Um, just upset about that. But it, it, it became so much more evident to me. God loves Ben's daughter so much more than Ben ever loved her. And he spoke through to her. And, and that's what God does when he, he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, and the Holy Spirit just brings the, the Scripture to, to remembrance. Here he is quoting from these these prophets in the Old Testament, just rolling off of his his tongue here. On our own, we're like sounding brass, clanging cymbals. We're like bumbling banjos. That's what we are. 
But with the Holy Spirit, we speak as the oracles of God, whatever God wants to speak through us. And so the Apostle Peter in verses 17 through 21 quotes from the Old Testament prophecy, which foretold a time when God would begin to pour out His Spirit. See, prior to the coming of Jesus, prior to the resurrection, prior to the ascension, you, if you do a study, a word study about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, that God... Uh, for his own purposes and sort of isolated times and isolated instances, people were filled with the Holy Spirit. But you see the Holy Spirit removed from people. He would be with people, not really in them for the most part. But the prophets in the Old Testament prophesied a time when God would pour out the Holy Spirit. And, and, and Peter is saying here, that is what you are seeing here. And he's responding to the, the, their question. How are these people speaking in um, our own language? And, and he's saying to them, this is what the prophet Joel said would happen. He said in verse 17, it shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Now, some of these signs that are described in the, the book of Joel, Old Testament, that Peter recites in these verses. Uh, for example, in verse 20, it says, the sun shall be turned into darkness. Well, that had already happened. Again, as a sign of what was about to happen, the pour, pouring out of, of God's Spirit. It happened at the end of Matthew when the sun became dark for three hours when Jesus was uh, on the cross. Other things in this verse, for example, uh, for example the moon turning to blood, uh, that will not happen until the second return of Christ or just prior to it. What Peter is saying is, listen, this is not a bunch of drunk men. What you're seeing here is the dawning of a new age that was promised to us through the prophets uh, of the Old Testament, a new covenant. And it's being confirmed by God with signs and wonders. And it is during this time he says in verse 21 that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jew, Gentile, slave, or freeman, whatever someone's past history has been, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He continues in verse 22. This is the first sermon, the first homily ever given in the church, the body of Christ. Men of Israel, hear these words. Hear, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through you, him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He's saying, look, you guys are well aware of the miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst. He says, as you yourselves also know. You know, when John the Baptist was in prison, John the Baptist announced Jesus' coming. Then he was imprisoned by Herod. When in prison, John was like any, any other person. Uh, he became discouraged and he started wondering, is Jesus really who I thought he was? Is he really the Messiah? And in Matthew 11, he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask them, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And Jesus told them, he said, uh, 
He told John's disciple, he says, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. As soon as John got that report, he would have had an affirmation in his heart that, oh yes, he is the Messiah. Why? Because the Old Testament prophet Isaiah had mentioned specifically, you will know the Messiah by these things. The blind are given their sight, the lame the ability to walk, the lepers cleanse, the deaf hearing, and the dead are raised to life. Those are the signs that accompany the Messiah. And here in Acts 2, 22, uh, Peter is saying to the crowd, you yourselves know, you know what God has done in your midst. You know about this. And he's de- so he's declaring Jesus Christ to them, to these people, but he's not doing it in a vacuum. He's not doing it, he's not just doing it where the people are completely unaware that God's been doing something in their midst. God is like that. The Lord is like that. You know, there's something I know about every one of you who is sitting here this morning. Every one of you. I know I haven't met all of you, and I promise I'm not getting weird on you. This is not like Madam Steve here, but, you know, fortune teller. But there's something I know about you. You have a history with God. I know that. You have a history with God. What do I mean by that? God has made himself known to you. He has led you. He has protected you. There has been times in your life where his hand was totally evident to you. He has guided you. He has been drawing you to him. Now, you need to stop resisting him. You yourselves know, just as Peter said, you yourselves know God has been in your midst. Don't kid yourself. Stop resisting the Lord. Stop it. And that is what Peter is saying here to these people filled with the Holy Spirit. He continues on in verse 23. He says, as you, um, end of verse 22, he says, as you yourselves also know him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, you have crucified and put him to death. Now skip over to verse 36. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? So Peter is saying here, in these verses that God has made himself so clear to you 
Verse 22, you yourselves know this. He's made himself clear to you. And then he says in verse 23, in spite of the fact that he's made himself so clear to you, you crucified Jesus. Verse 23, you have taken Jesus by lawless hands and have crucified him and put him to death. And then, lest there be any misunderstanding what he said, he repeats himself in verse 36. He says, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. Tells him twice, you crucified him. Now this is important. He is speaking to thousands of people here. And these thousands of people had not all nailed Jesus to the cross. They had really nothing to do with his trial. They, certainly few of them, possibly had yelled out, you crucify him. But most of them, no doubt, had not even been there. Nevertheless, Peter is telling them, you crucify Jesus, who is both Lord and Christ. And this morning, I say to you the same thing that Peter said here in Acts chapter 2, you, yes you, crucified Jesus. You did. Unless you misunderstand me, I'll say it again, just like Peter did. You crucified Jesus. You did. Your sin, my sin, our sin, put Jesus on the cross. God is holy. He is white hot holy. He must punish sin. He has to judge it. He can't just wink at it and pretend it didn't happen. He can't cover up injustice. If he did, he wouldn't be God. He must punish your sin. But God is love. And he doesn't want to punish you for your sin because the punishment, the penalty of sin is death and everlasting separation from you. He doesn't want that. And God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his son to be a replacement for you. He went to to the cross to die so you wouldn't have to. So let's get this right. You crucified Jesus, who is both Lord and Christ. You did, I did, we did. Our problem is self-righteousness. We spend the better part of our lives trying to convince ourselves and those around us that we're not so bad. Really, we're not so bad. When in reality, the one time God came to earth in the flesh, we put Him to death. And, and what Peter said here in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is telling us today, look, you yourselves know God has dealt with you in your life. He's been so gracious and merciful to you. He's shown Himself so evident to you. Stop resisting Him. Stop it. Verse 37 says, um, again, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Do. What is a Christian? That term is just thrown around so much. It's uh, actually only mentioned once in the Bible. And that's to describe 
uh, later on actually in the book of Acts, that's to describe what someone else called the followers of Jesus. But what is it? What is a Christian? Well, a Christian is a man or a woman who has come to the place in their life where they realize they're guilty. You become a Christian when and only when and not one second before that you declare yourselves and you realize you're guilty. And there's no escape except through God Himself. And you cry out, Lord, what do I do? Acts 2.38 gives the answer. Then Peter said to them, Repent! And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, For the promise is to you and to your children, to all who are far off, and as many as the Lord our God will call. Repent. It's the Greek word metaneo. It it means to change one's mind, to change your mind. It means to reject and let go. To let go of what you have clung to in the past and to lay hold of Jesus and everything that He is by faith. What He has done for you on the cross. You do that and verse 38 says, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And again, verse 38 continues, for the promise is for you and your children and to all who are far off and as many as the Lord our God will call. What an incredible, what an awesome promise. The promise is for you and your children. And then it says in verse 40, and with many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. The Greek word for perverse is the word twisted. Save yourself from this twisted generation. The world, the world takes the Word of God and twists it. That's why it's called here a twisted or a crooked generation. The world takes the Word of God and, and twists it around and says, you're okay with God. God's okay with you. Don't sweat it. Peter says, be saved from that. Then we'll close in verse 41. It says, then those who gladly received his word, were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. If you have never come to the place in your life where you have said to God, I'm guilty. I'm, I'm guilty. What do I do? I urge you, be saved. When these 3,000 people showed up at the Feast of the Pentecost, they thought they were just going to a big barbecue. They had no idea what was going to happen that day. But they were saved that day through a simple prayer of faith. That's all it takes, the Bible says. It costs us so little because it costs God so much. I urge you, if you've never come to the place in your life where you have said to God, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, what do I do? Be saved today. The Bible says that through Christ you can be saved and enter into an everlasting, abundant life. You know, come pray with us. There'll be someone here after the service who can pray with you. Just come up. 
They'll lead you in a prayer. What a wonderful message. It's filled with what? It's filled with Jesus. Messages that are not filled with Jesus are not filled with the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit always turns our eyes towards Him, towards Jesus Christ. Okay, let's close in prayer. We'll pick up next week in Acts 42. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank You for this wonderful promise, just the gift of the Holy Spirit, the abundant life that we have in Christ. Father, I thank you for for drawing us and then drawing us again and then calling us and drawing us again and again and again. And then just being honest with us, Lord, and saying, stop resisting, come to me. Father, if there's anyone in this room who's never come to the place in their life where they just say, I'm guilty, what do I do? I pray, Father, that you would lead them into that relationship with Jesus this morning. But Father, I I pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, for everyone in this room, that we would continue to be just yielded to what you've said and done in our lives. We'd respond to the call, that we wouldn't resist the Holy Spirit. Father, we ask for forgiveness on behalf of this city and the leadership of this city and the history they have had opposing the wonderful works of God. And we ask for forgiveness and and mercy, Lord. And we ask that you would use us to metaneo, repent, bring repentance, a change of mind, a change of direction for this city. That's what we ask for, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that your ways are not our ways, that there is an abundance of mercy with you. Father, again, we love you and we need you, and we pray this in Jesus' name.